It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 4th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. A report by the National Women's Council of Ireland published yesterday is highlighting an urgent need for reforms across the justice system for survivors of domestic and sexual abuse. The state is failing many survivors because they're being forced to navigate three separate legal systems, criminal, family and if children are involved, child protection Processes. The report says that the onus is on the survivor to navigate these processes simultaneously. This is because the systems don't acknowledge or interact with each other. The result of this, the authors of this report say, is significant trauma and re-victimisation for survivors. Ellen O'Malley Dunlop is one of the authors of the report and she joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Ellen, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Your report was funded by the Department of Justice and it finds many flaws across the justice system that at times put people in dangerous situations. Yes, um, I, I suppose the, the positive thing is that Minister for Justice yesterday, uh, Simon Harris, was very, it was very um heartening to hear him say that uh, they will certainly take on the recommendations of this uh, uh, report and implement it. Now, we know that when somebody is a victim of domestic or sexual violence, they are very vulnerable. And um, when they get to a stage where they're reporting to the Garda Síochána, um, they really have never been in touch with for anything of the criminal justice system in their lives, let's say. And so they report to the Garda uh, Síochána and then uh, they realise that, it, let's say, a victim uh, could be in a criminal court if they're a, vi- if they're a victim of uh, sexual violence. But if they are then, say, seeking a an order, uh, an order where a barring order or protection order, or, or one of those many orders, because they're victims of domestic violence, then they find themselves in the civil court. And so here we have two courts immediately uh, mm. looming in front of them that they haven't a clue about. And then if there's children involved, they will find themselves in the family courts where uh, custody or access is being sorted. So and these courts don't speak to each other. 
and, and that's where our uh, think our recommendations uh, will be really helpful to ensure that the victims who are, as I say, already vulnerable and are made even more vulnerable by the system as it is currently uh, currently working or not working. And uh, so there are very practical things that can happen. For example, the Garda Síochána um, need to work with the Child and Family Agency because when there is a an issue of child protection, for example, immediately you've got the Child and Family Agency involved. And there needs to be protocols worked out as to how the Garda Síochána and the um, TUSA, or Child and Family Agency, work together. Protocols whereby they share information that it's not a, a, a you know it's not a burden upon the the victim themselves <clears throat> to share this information. Okay, you seem very disappointed with uh, Tusla, the Child and Family Agency, in terms of how it's dealing with complaints of child sexual abuse. Well, um, the, the system is, I mean, the Child and Family Agency is such a new agency, and I suppose I have a, a bit of a, a bee in my bonnet about that agency because it is carrying the, the, the Department of Children uh, is a, a relatively new department, and it really hasn't had the time to develop because now we have it's got diversity, it's got uh, equality, it's got. Uh, you know, it's dealing mm. with a whole number of, of other issues, and it really, I believe, needs to, uh, in sh- to be bedded down and be the child and family agency, and not have all these extra, uh, uh, extra layers to it. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and is there an effort of trying to be fair or trying to be too fair to too many people at the same time or is it individuals who are are jumping the gun because uh, you're concerned that people who have been accused of abusing children are being questioned by Tusla and they're giving them information, they're giving the perpetrators uh, or the accused perpetrators information before the Gardaí get to speak to them. Yes, I, I mean, that is a, a big concern that uh, Tusla are interviewing the alleged perpetrator and uh, they are giving them information about the complaint that has been made against them before the Garda Síochána gets to interview them. And they are not sharing that information. So in a sense, the alleged perpetrator could have a lot more information, you know, going into the court process that uh, would you know, but could one would hope that they wouldn't, but would create a defence that uh, would not uh, reflect well on the uh, the victim and the family. So mm. it's you know it's that kind of breakdown and lack of communication. Now we also um, some of the key recommendations are uh, that we really feel that uh, victims need a a, a resourced. Uh, support support mm. both for the victims themselves and for the child because the child in these situations very often the voice of the child gets lost mm. and and we also are calling for really really uh, strict training and ongoing training for those uh, people who are giving court reports uh, because that is terribly important but so often I mean there's been uh, you know, a rise in the, the idea of uh, parental alienation, where one parent 
is setting up the children against the other parent. Mm. And uh, that really needs to be looked at. Um, so we, so It's a terrible that, mistake a, a lot of people make intentionally or otherwise, uh, but it's the child that suffers in those circumstances. And I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that people need support na- navigating the justice system. I was a bit bamboozled listening to you when you were saying that you could end up in a criminal court and then go on to a civil court and then go on to a family court. Uh, I mean, I'm overwhelmed at the idea of being in court with uh, uh, a parking ticket unpaid or something like that. Uh, exactly, Michael. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, like these are vulnerable uh, people who are, you know, who have been traumatised what has already happened to them. And they come into a court setting, which in itself, as you know, you know, going for a parking uh, uh, offence, you know, how... Uh, intimidating the court setting is. And again, this is something we're calling for, that the courts themselves, you know, when the new family court comes into uh, being, hopefully, you know, that will be more victim-friendly. And that's our whole trust in this report is is for, we want a victim-centred, coordinated response to victims of domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. Right, and the family court is always held in camera. Uh, which means uh, it's not open to the public or reporters. Uh, there is a family court reporting service now, but generally not open to the press. Uh, and uh, the idea of that is to protect the victims, to allow them to hang on through their anonymity. Uh, but you, you, you're concerned about the in-camera rule. Well, yes. I mean, one of the things that the in-camera rule, uh, it doesn't allow, for example, victims to talk to anybody outside of the court system, even to their therapists, you know, about what is happening in the court for fear, you know, they may be held in contempt of court. So we feel that the in-camera rule has, you know, there's a a lot that can be done in terms of allowing the victim to speak with court personnel, with persons who are, you know, engaged in the provision of therapy and other relevant parties. And that type of thing, in fact, yesterday, the minister said, you know, he said this is something that could be dealt with very quickly. Uh, and that was, again, heartening to hear him say that, you know, so many of the recommendations are practical and can be implemented uh, more or less immediately. The other um, thing that we would like to see developed and implemented is a national domestic violence register, you know, on which information regarding previous civil orders and criminal convictions of relevance you know, will be retained and made available to courts uh, when there are um, no determining uh, outcomes in terms of sentencing, etc. Because, you know, you could have uh, somebody in a family court situation looking for, uh, say, an alleged perpetrator who may be found guilty in another court and that information is not available in the family court Mm. when access has been uh, sought or custody. I take it something that is less straightforward is training of people, is changing mindsets, culture, attitude and some of the things that victims have been asked like why did you stay so long? Would you not have have left earlier? Um, Why did you put up with it? Exactly. I mean and that's where Trauma-informed training is so important. Now, the judiciary are currently, you know, undergoing training, which is very welcome. Uh, and uh, But that, that needs to be across the board and ongoing. And, of course, delays are, uh, again, another big 
uh, block to a victim staying within the court system because there are you know, aren't enough judges. And uh, now there's supposed to be, uh, I think it's 24 judges appointed in this coming year, and we hope that that's accelerated. Okay. The Minister described your report as significant. Uh, Undoubtedly, it it will feed into policy and hopefully it'll have a a positive impact on those people who fall victim uh, to domestic violence and sexual violence. It it really is a pleasure to get the opportunity to talk to you again, Ellen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Not at all. Thank you very much, Michael. And I hope you put out the helplines 1-800-77-8888 for uh, the sexual yep. violence and one eight hundred three four one nine hundred for victims of domestic violence. Okay, that's one eight hundred seventy seven seventy seven eighty eight and one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. Ellen, as I say, thank you as always. Thank for you very much, Always Michael. nice to talk thank to you. you, Ellen O'Malley Dunlop, uh, one of uh, the authors of uh, that report for the National Women's Council. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the search is on for Ireland's newest politician. Uh, That's what it says in front of me. Uh, The question is, who will she be? Uh, Let's speak uh, to Katrina Gleeson, who's uh, the CEO with Women for Election. Katrina, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. We have local elections next year and you want to see 1,000 women on the ticket. Yes, good morning, Michael. And actually, so it's politicians and uh, women, female politicians is what we're looking for. The search is, is on across Ireland. Yes, um, Michael, I'm not sure if um, listeners realise in terms of how few women there are actually in the Dáil in Ireland and how few women uh, there are occupying seats across all the local chambers across Ireland. And Louth is actually no exception. So in your last elections, I think it was 14 women who were elected and you've had some co-option since onto the onto the Loud County Council. But actually in the entire history of the state, there's only ever been one woman elected in the constituency um of Louds um to, to the Dáil and that was the most recent election of Melda Munster. So nice. we have a serious um overrepresentation of men in Irish politics. That's the reality. And what women for election are doing is we're working across Ireland and across communities to really try to reach into areas where um, we haven't seen activity in terms of women stepping forward into politics. And we're a big call out with our new campaign, um, which has been relaunched, the Counter In campaign. So we're actually calling out to everybody to look around them and identify women in their lives who they actually think, you know what, You'd you'd love it. You'd be you have the passion. You um, have obviously any woman will have the qualification to do it because you you just need to have the passion to run, and then have the networks to to be to step forward and and get elected. And in that space in between is where women for election come in because what we offer is um, very bespoke. Um, mentoring and training programs that unlock politics um, for those who haven't been involved in it previously and in our case we're focusing on women. Okay. Uh, If you were to ask people uh, who they'd select as uh, being a a good politician from their network of friends and family and so on, who would you expect them to nominate, a man or a woman? Well, actually, we've just commissioned uh, research with Amorok who who basically worked with us to identify were there issues in terms of the voter was going to vote for men or women and uh, specifically and so no voters um, which backs up existing research vote 
uh, vote on policy, vote, vote on local candidates, vote on national policy, local policy, gender isn't the issue. But what we did find uh, where there was a gender difference is that when asked if you pick a are likely to pick a female or a male relative, relative to run for election, um, there was a significant difference. 33% of people would have picked a female relative and only 25% would have picked a male relative. So we're seeing a slight gender difference in terms of who people would look at and, and then broadening that out into community. So um, I think from the pandemic mm. and the recognition, we saw this in 2009 when we had the crash, that there was a real um, absence of women from politics. And that became more evident in, two, in the next elections in 2014 when people saw during the cash, crash when, when politics actually really mattered to people, that um, women were absent. And now we're seeing this again from the pandemic, that we, mm. so we all painfully cast our minds back to who was at the decision ta- tables when critical decisions about everybody's lives were being made and there weren't women there. And that, and, and that really shone a light on that. So um, there's a real hunger out there now. People want change. Um, you know, we have a fantastic uh, representation in Ireland but we actually need to see greater diversity in that. And so people want change, they're hungry for change. And so we're saying, look, politics actually, and I, I'm sure yeah. many people relate, was more traditionally considered to be a male occupation. And it was also kind of sitting within existing networks, like family networks or existing political uh, party networks. So now we're saying politics is for everyone, and we want to see a lot more women uh, involved. So this is our call out um, and asking people to nominate, uh, go to our website and our womenforelection.ie and, and nominate people on the counter in page um, to to come forward to us and we'll, we'll give them all the information they need then. Right, whether you know them or not. Well, listen, it's better that you know them. You know, I mean, you can, of course, we're asking you to send their emails. Yeah. At least you can have their email address. I mean, I mean, yeah. absolutely, if you think there's somebody in your community, it would be, you know, mm. what I'd say to people listening is, if you know somebody that you think should run, um, yeah. approach them and have a conversation with them as well. Ask, okay. ask them if they're interested. What we are, it's, I'm amazed by it, uh, Michael, because um, even the most senior and most successful female politicians will say they had, they had, they were asked. They didn't actually put their hands up. And it, there is a very, you, you probably know that from even on local radio, there's a very diff, gender difference in terms of when you're looking for a, a man to come on radio and a, and a woman to come on radio in terms of the likely response. So what, we're, what we we still have to do to break down that um, that socialisation is we have to keep, continue to ask women. There's plenty of women who put their yeah. hands up, but we need to ask them um, to run and ask them at least five times to run. So even if they say no to you, they might you might plant a seed in their head and somebody else might... Um, might pick that that, mm. that baton up. I'm a bit lost on that last bit about asking people to come on the radio. Uh, I think I, I'd have thought uh, there was wasn't much difference. I, I, I would think that more men put themselves forward than women do. Yes, that's what we're saying. Right, so men okay. are more likely to put themselves forward. And um, what we're hearing from other, maybe you don't have that yeah. issue in Laos, but we do hear it around the country that when they're looking for commentators to come on, it's, there's no issue usually finding men to come on, but it's usually women think about whether they're good enough to speak about something when they go on. Really? Yeah, that's something mm. something that's coming through in terms of media research. So we're just looking at, I mean, I'm not, not on about media here, we're on about politics. Mm. What we know from politics is that people actually, um, women... Um, there are plenty of women who put their hands up, yeah. but there are loads of women out there who are running. If, if you go to, to the whole of County Loud, I know from working mm. with the and domestic course, violence yeah. services mm-hmm. and me and mm-hmm. the domestic violence services there, the housing services, the local chambers, the businesses, all of the um, community development work that's happening across Loud and Mead, that, that we, um, there's so many women running 
communities. Mm. But when women aren't at the decision-making tables where a lot of decisions that matter about community are being made, and that's the local chambers and that's the doll. And, uh, and the I'm all the more confused though, Katrina. Why would a woman think to herself, I'm not good enough to go on? Um, it, well, it's it's not... well. Okay, <laughs> we want to do a we want to do a whole hour on socialisation and and uh, uh, women being not being not being brought into um, these spaces. Right. There's a confidence issue that we sorry. There's a confidence issue that we have seen in research over the years. Um, it's not really that women aren't clearly women are good enough, yeah. but um, the so- socialisation of men and women over the years, women would have been reared through generations and generations, not to see themselves as leaders, not to see themselves as politicians, not mm. to see themselves as going forward, whereas there would have been a much greater expectation um, with men. I'm mm. speaking very generally, um, yeah. but that's oh, no, no, no. the social science. No, I, 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 I mean, it doesn't justify the situation. It is hard to understand it uh, in a logical sense, uh, but uh, what's logical about life? Uh, I, I remember back in the 1990s, uh, there was a group called Women On Air uh, who were trying to uh, get more women into jobs like the one I have. Uh, but one, their research found, and, and this was really fascinating, I thought, was that women didn't like listening to women, that they didn't trust uh, women to the same degree, they didn't think they had the same authority, they felt uh, that the reporting or whatever you like was more authoritative if it was coming from a, a man than a woman. Now, I think an awful lot has changed since then. We're going back yeah, 25 yeah, years. We, have, so, we yeah. have seen a lot of change, Michael, yeah, and I yeah, think mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the I suppose, going back to politics, the reality is that it has been a, a traditionally held space by men for 100 years. So mm. we're looking at 77% of the seats in the doll are occupied by men. So if you ma- even imagine that on a map, what that looks like yeah. in terms of space. So it hasn't been a, a traditional space. We've seen changes in other areas in Ireland, mm. like women's sport is a really good example, um, women into science, women into law. We've seen all of these institutions being radically changed over the last 20 years. And so in terms of politics, that's where, we need, that's where we're lagging. Ireland is sitting, yeah. like, would you believe we're 101st in the world? We're behind China in terms of our equality for women, uh, gender ahead. equality really? in politics. Really? Yeah, that's, mm. yeah. so mm. we're, it's an area we've really, really lagged in. So, so the and question is, is politics uh, an appropriate profession for women? Absolutely, it is. Yeah, there's no, there's not a question. Is politics in Ireland uh, an appropriate profession for women, uh, given that it's male dominated, given that it's not child friendly, given uh, that you have uh, this uh, very hard to understand uh, method of uh, debating with people at each other's throats and shouting at each other? Yeah, all, and, all and all of those cultures. Yeah, so culture is a barrier to women, and care is a barrier to women's participation in politics. But these things are changing as well. So, like we've Women for Election have been involved in the advocacy space for a number of years now and so we've we've done a lot of work with government so there's like maternity leave is now finally in for local for local government more changes are happening in the doll there's changes in terms of how the doll operates and around working hours in terms of being more family friendly hopefully we'll see um, more changes in terms of um, remote parliament and that into the future that they're all very high on recommendation lists and the other the other things that are changing as well Ireland's changing in terms of care so care is being shared more rightfully um, politics isn't necessarily the most attractive every minute of the day but uh, we're working with women who've been elected we've been working with women for over 10 yeah. years in Ireland and many of the women who are elected now have been to our programmes so they're coming back to us and saying yeah there's hard days but they are way outweighed by the the absolute benefits of serving your your community and and the privilege to do that. So we hear from a lot of 
female um, elected and formerly elected um, councillors and TDs and senators that it's actually an incredible privilege. They get so much done and they get to make a difference. Okay, some people Um, look on politics as a combative sport and they like the cut and thrust of it and they like people going for each other's throats. Uh, And and, and that's uh, what you get from men, I think, generally in in politics. And people uh, quite often like that and think that was great crack uh, until it's actually an issue that they're worried about and then they turn around and say, I couldn't hear a word. Uh, Would they not address the issue? Uh, And you don't get that with women. This is and, when, and so what we need to at least get is 30% women at the table to start seeing that shift. And it's not saying that all women, that women won't be adversarial either, but we want to bring in a different type of politics. And so, I mean, listening to some female MEPs from Ireland who are over in Europe, that the polit- political systems are very different. Um, that adversarial culture isn't the same everywhere. So it doesn't have to be that way here. And I think politicians might be starting to recognise that, some of them anyway, that the general public and the voter don't want the argy bargy. It's not. It's not doing us any good. It's not. It's not good for. It's not good for democracy, and it's not good for the potential in Ireland. So, so what we're seeing is that when you have like a really good example would be the Shannon, where you've nearly forty percent of females in the Shannon, women in the Shannon, and over the years, the Shannon's ability to produce really um, progressive legislation, particularly in the last uh, eight years, has changed because women are in there in critical mass and they're they're collaborating across party and they're putting their heads together to problem solve. Mm. And that's, you know, statistically what women bring to the table a lot more than when there's when there's they bring that collaboration, they bring that ability to get things done and problem solve and be more efficient with time. Okay. It's not saying that individually men don't do that, but it, when you have the critical mass. So these are the kind of things it, I, I think nobody wants yeah. the same old and I think this is why we've a call out we have an opportunity for the next 12 months, Michael. Yeah. We have... Um, is there time? I was just going to ask you, because yeah, we, do, we do need to wrap up. You're asking people to put themselves forward. You're asking people to put other people forward or, or to talk to them and hope to convince them to put themselves forward. Uh, is there enough time to establish yourself before the local elections? Yeah, there still is enough time. And we're running programmes all the time to support women coming forward. And there's parties are looking for women as well. So, um, you know, if you have an interest in a political party, reach out to them. Reach out to the national headquarters. Um, look, to, look to get involved in political parties or if you're interested independently but contact Women for Election and we'll steer you and we'll guide you so go to womenforelection.ie and um, the counter win campaign find go, let's, 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 let's create this critical mass I think we can at least get close to the thousand women on the ticket if we, if we really put our, our, our shoulders to the wheel and Ireland needs this mm. it's actually really important this isn't a, a fluffy thing this is actually really important and what you said there's about democracy. 24% of uh, the county councillors in the country are, are women if there were a thousand women on the ticket uh, what would you expect uh, in terms of results I would hope that we'd be getting closer to 30-35% right, in the next election and that yeah. by 2030, I don't, you know, by 2030, 2029, we'll have reached the 50%, but that's going to require an extraordinary effort. Um, but we've been waiting 100 years. So, like, are we, <laughs> if we have to stay at this pace of change, it'll be another 150 years before we'd reach parity. So we mm. can't, we can't maintain that status quo. Okay, far too long. Katrina, thank you indeed. Michael, uh, thank you very us. much. Thank you very much. Katrina Gleeson is uh, the CEO of Women for Election. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Plenty of calls coming to us uh, this morning and do continue to call if you haven't uh, been in touch yet. Uh, we'll come to the calls around 10 o'clock but I just want to bring you some of uh, the comments now. Well, one in fact uh, from Martin who was in touch uh, because your comment is very timely, Martin. It's similar to a call we got 
yesterday. Uh, Martin says he bought milk in his local shop last week for two twenty nine. He went to the same shop yesterday. It cost him two forty six. That's a seventeen cent increase, uh, which he says is price gouging. Uh, we'll talk about that in a, a minute, I think, Martin, because we've got a similar call yesterday. And thank you indeed uh, for getting in touch with us. But last weekend, the price of milk dropped, uh, and this week we're talking about a forty cent price drop uh, for people buying butter. Let's uh, speak uh, to Charlie Weston, who's uh, the personal finance editor with uh, the Irish Independent. A very good morning to you, Charlie, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. You're reporting on this, uh, and indeed, that people should expect more drops in prices for dairy products. That's right, Michael. No, not huge drops. And remember, it's in the context of prices haven't gone through the roof. Um, you know, your, your your staples are up by about 50% in the last uh, 18 months. You know, you take a sliced pan, up 25 cents. Um, a, a kilogram of cheese, cheddar cheese, is up about 160. Uh, you know, and, and, and those cuts we're talking about now that we've seen from the, the, the big supermarket chains, uh, there's two things to remember about those. One, they're on the own brands, and it's only those big chains. So your small little local shop may, may not be able to pass on a, a cut in milk or butter. But uh, what we've seen is milk prices. Lidl announced a price cut on Friday, quickly followed by Aldi, Tesco, and then Super Value. And then yesterday we had um, uh, butter, own brand butter in Tesco. They said they were taking 40 cents off the what we used to call the the, the, the pound of butter, Michael, you know, mm. four, 454 grams, so, uh, taking the price of their own brand down by 40 cents to 2.99. That was followed by Aldi and Super Value. So there is a bit of a, you know, there's it, it's to do with two things, extraordinarily high levels of competition among these supermarket chains. They're all chasing volume and market share, particularly those German discounters. They're in expansion mode and they want to make sure they can continue to, you know, to, to, to expand their share of sales in the market. And the likes of Tesco are very competitive as well. But I suppose the other factor, and I've spoken to a lot of experts here, you know, the likes of Professor Michael Wallace of UCD, is an expert in farm economics, and, and um, uh, Edgar Morgenroth of uh, DCU, they say that commodity prices have been falling on, on, on the world stage. Now we're talking here fertilizer prices, feed prices, oil, uh, those key inputs and wheat, for example, is at a two-year low, mm. and and that's that's kind of feeding in, if you excuse the pun, into lower prices across the market. And could uh, result in uh, lower prices for bread. You're reporting as well today, but uh, this has gone down like a, a lead balloon with farmers. Uh, farmers are up in arms. You know they're um, <laughs> they're very very angry, and they've been piling in on me for days because I, I I obviously somebody who writes about consumers think. This is this consumers need a break here, and it's not huge, but at least these price cuts help. And they're the first cuts we've seen in two years. Uh, you know, you take your your average um, uh, milk. You know, you you it, if you're two liters. You could have got it for one forty nine uh, in twenty nineteen before the the Russians invaded Ukraine. It's up about fifty percent now, seventy cents. But you know the farmers fear that they will be the losers here. You know they they had a good run up to now. They we're getting sixty cents a liter, uh, but that's already come back fifteen cents per liter. Mm. And they think you know they'll end up having to fund this. Even though I've asked all these supermarkets who's taking the hit here, yeah. and and you get an answer from. Tesco saying that they're investing in this is how they put it. They're investing in it. I read that in the paper this morning. I didn't quite understand what that meant. I don't either, but I mean, <laughs> I took it to mean that well, they're taking the hit on it, yeah. uh, you know. Um, but um, 
uh, farmers are saying, look, inevitably it, it, it will hit them. You know, their costs have, have gone through the roof. Uh, prices started going up for dairy products uh, in the supermarkets before they got a higher price. But they did have a run, you know, they did have a 60 cent uh, per litre run for a while there. Uh, and, you know, the, for example, if you take the results issued yesterday by Orivo, it's the kind of gold butter, uh, the main kind of gold butter, they, they, they were saying that they, um, they're paying farmers last year 61.4 cents per litre. That's a rise of 50% on what they paid in 2021. Mm. Uh, but... You know, farmers now think, you know, it'll come down to them and what they get at the farm gate will, will fall and they'll suffer. And, and, you know, the milk business is a tough business because it's hard to get people to work, to get up early for six, seven days a week and milk cows. And uh, mm. uh, it's a tough old business. But a lot of them were in expansion mode. You'll see that you'll see that falling back a bit now. So You were looking at the price increases as well. You mentioned Connacht Gold and you did a calculation on Connacht Gold over the course of a year. If you bought one packet of... A pound, I take it, 450 grams, 454 grams uh, of Connacht Gold, uh, you'd uh, be spending a lot more money on it over the course of a year. Yeah, well, this is not just Connacht Gold, but, for, mm. you know, take, t- 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 you know, a house that um, uh, buys butter, real butter, and, mm. and a lot of houses don't anymore. But anyway, and, and, and they're buying a pound a week, what we used to call a pound, 450 mm. grams a week. I mean, you know, the, the, the annual cost of that is up about 60 euros, 63 euros. So if you were to keep buying mm. a pound of butter every week, you're paying an extra 63 euros. Now, it's a lot of money for butter, isn't it's it? It's a hell of a lot of money. I mean, you yeah. consider that on top of higher mortgage, mortgage costs for a lot of people, petrol and diesel, heating, uh, you know, electricity, gas, home heating oil. Uh, all of these things have gone through the roof. Mm. Um, no matter what you pay, you, you, you do service a car, whatever it is, everything is dearer. And there is, an, there is a, you know, a greedflation phenomenon out there, and this has even been pointed out by the European Central Bank. They're not yeah. known to be lefty, uh, you know, screamers about or anti-corporate in any way, but they have pointed the fact that there's profiteering going on. So a lot of companies are using the inflation mm. environment we're in as an excuse to, to, to shove up prices. And uh, there's no the end in sight uh, to inflation on groceries, but we have a, a price war. Uh, but it's on these small items, the staple, and that's intentional, is it, Charlie? It is. It's, it's their way of building <coughs> um, uh, market share uh, because th- what they're seeing is people are going to the shops less often and they're buying less, uh, they're buying smaller amounts of goods and they're very much pushing, um, switching over to, to branded goods. Branded and own brands now are, are, sorry, switching away from branded goods. Branded and own brand goods now are about 50-50 in terms of sales. So people have started buying the, the cheaper versions of what they can get. So, you know, as an incentive to get people to go shopping more often, maybe, or maybe, maybe less often, actually, I'm just buying bigger amounts. They, they, you know, they're trying to kind of entice you in. It used to be called a, a loft leader. Entice you in with these cuts. So it, it's all part of the marketing mm-hmm. Uh, by these supermarkets. So, you know, cynics will say, oh, look, at, uh, this is not about helping uh, customers, as Tesco claims. This is about making sure people keep crossing the door and going into those uh, shops. Uh, so, you know, mm. uh, there is a big, there is an element of that. Um, okay. And the farmers concerned, as you say. Charlie, we have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you for your time and for joining us on the programme today. Cheers. Thank you very much. Charlie Weston is the personal finance editor with the Irish Independent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we've been hearing quite a, a bit uh, about uh, the cost of groceries. It is a, an issue that was raised once again in the Dáil by Louth Mead TD, Labour's Jed Nash. 
House on the extraordinarily high price of groceries. Uh, Taoiseach, you know that the biggest uh, daily uh, issue facing households across the country uh, is the extraordinarily high price of bread, milk, butter, eggs, the basic staples on which we uh, all depend. Now, we know that last weekend the major supermarket multiples, uh, almost in a synchronised fashion, uh, reduced the price of milk literally overnight on the same day by practically the same amount. And I'm deeply suspicious uh, as to how and why uh, that happened. Now, we know that the cost of producing goods is coming down. Uh, but the cost to consumers are still uh, uh, extremely high. We need a debate on this issue in this House, and in the meantime, uh, Tishiga, I will call on you to engage the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission and enable them to carry out an investigation on price gouging and competition in the retail grocery sector Deputy in this Matthew country. Thanks. Um, thanks very much, much deputies. Um, just to, in relation to uh, the, cost, the cost of living uh, and the high grocery prices that people are, are facing, um, we are seeing evidence now that inflation is slowing down, peaked around 10%, now around 6%. We expect it to fall by 5% um, by the end of the year. But inflation slowing down is not the same as prices coming down. Um, but there is some evidence that some prices are coming down. Certainly the price of petrol and diesel uh, peaked quite some time ago. Uh, we're seeing now the price of milk coming down, and we're seeing the price of butter coming down as well, given the announcement uh, today by one of the, super, one of the supermarkets. Um, when it comes to the CCPC, wrote to them back in November in my capacity as Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, uh, they do have the powers uh, to investigate price signalling uh, and also cartel behaviour, and they have the resources to do that. And I know Minister Coveney and Minister Richmond are following up on that. Um, I've specifically asked Minister Richmond to bring forward the next meeting of the Retail Forum uh, so that we can engage with retailers further, and he's going to take action on that uh, in the next couple of days. And I do want to be very clear about this. Uh, retailers, other businesses, increased prices when input prices went up. That's understandable. If in pr input prices are coming down, well, then they now need to re reduce the prices that they paid to that they charge consumers. I'm very clear about that, and we are going to be monitoring it. Right, uh, that's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, very clear about that, uh, and indeed uh, insisting uh, that uh, there is a, a change in what we're paying uh, and uh, the increases uh, that we've seen in uh, the last few months. Uh, it's not just grocery prices, of course. Energy prices are leading to inflation uh, and uh, we know that the wholesale prices of energy have reduced. So why is our bills or why are our bills not coming down in line with those prices? Uh, as you know, if you were listening to us yesterday, you'd have heard Darren O'Rourke talk about uh, Sinn Féin private members' motion on this. And we'll hear just uh, a little bit of what uh, the Minister, Eamon Ryan, had to say about these prices. The recent reduction in wholesale gas prices in Europe is welcome. However, prices remain significantly higher than pre-crisis levels, with wholesale energy costs accounting for a significant percentage of total supplier costs, a sustained period of falling wholesale gas prices will lead to retail market price reductions. However, hedging by suppliers that results in a significant proportion of energy purchased in, uh, over several months in advance have impacted or may impact the ability of suppliers to reduce prices, notwithstanding the decline in the wholesale cost of gas. What if I can, and that's something that, yes, we will look and talk to every company looking to make sure they advance the cuts as quickly as can be possible. And, but it is not something that you can completely ignore or click your fingers and ignore the reality in a market where do, companies do typically hedge some 12 to 18 months in advance. And that is why it will take time, and this is in other countries, not just in Ireland, just across Europe, 
for those retail prices to come down. But we, like everyone else in this House, we look forward and promote and try and deliver and achieve that in whatever way we can, but not by promising the impossible. Not by promising the impossible. That's Eamon Ryan, uh, the Minister for the Environment, leader of uh, the Green Party. Uh, hopefully we will see some reduction in prices. I suppose uh, that's what uh, the government is saying, uh, with the rest of us. Uh, to some comments now, Jimmy in touch with us about the nurses, the INMO, are holding uh, their conference in Killarney. He doesn't believe that the Minister for Health or the CEO of the HSC should be invited to attend at the conference. The Minister and the HSC wouldn't meet them under normal circumstances but will always be available to attend when the cameras are there. Jimmy thinks that the INMO should take a stand and refuse to have them at the AGM. Thank you indeed uh, for that, uh, Jimmy. Our telephone number, by the way, is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Some texts that have come to us uh, this morning. Jerry in Wilkinstown says, Michael, the bloody farmers complain when they're doing well, making profits. So I've no uh, respect uh, in particular for dairy farmers. He, he says uh, the cost of milk uh, should be coming down by a euro at least. Uh, well, as we heard earlier on, the farmers have taken a significant... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Drop in what they're getting for their milk, Jerry, uh, over the course of uh, this year. 60 cents, I think it was. Uh, Jed Nash is right, says Brendan Moore. Supermarkets are fleecing the public uh, and uh, he should go to the factories uh, and ask them uh, to produce products uh, that uh, would bring down the price in the supermarkets but at the same time respect the working terms and conditions of uh, their employees. Uh, John Navin says uh, the government's decision to reduce the cost of milk and butter. I don't think it was their decision, John. I think it's the supermarkets and uh, that is uh, why there is some concern because uh, they're following each other uh, in line with the cuts that the other has done. 40 cent on the price of milk says one. So says everybody. Uh, He says uh, man cannot live it on milk and butter alone. Thank you indeed, uh, John, as always. Now, uh, we had a somewhat contentious interview on the programme yesterday. A lot of calls that came to us after that interview about LGBT plus books being available to young people in uh, libraries. 
12 to 17 year olds and indeed about what uh, the curriculum uh, will be teaching uh, children in schools uh, about sex under uh, the new sex education curriculum uh, with uh, Jana London uh, who was on the programme a campaigner against these books uh, and indeed as it turned out against transsexuals Um, but uh, as I say a lot of comments came to us Uh, we can only select uh, some of them because there were so many comments that came to us uh, but let me give you an idea of what people were saying I think most people uh, would have uh, agreed with the position that Janet took uh, and uh, were critical of uh, the interview and me and how I conducted that interview Uh, one here uh, I don't think it's signed it says I'd like to express my disgust at Michael Reid on the programme speaking to Janet how dare he ask a woman or anyone else for that matter uh, some in- intimate sexual questions. Uh, I disagree about books. Uh, they're pornographic and they should not be anywhere near 12-year-olds. As an adult, I'm shocked at what these books are teaching children. It's not normal to eat poo, nor is it normal to indoctrinate young minds into thinking they can change sex. If you're born with a penis, you're a man, period. These young people who feel they have a problem should be seen by someone else. Uh, who is not government or pharma funded and helped through their gender dysphoria in a loving kind way. Anyone who encourages a girl to have a, a double mastectomy before full adulthood is a deviant and ought to be jailed for torture and mutilation in my humble opinion. Uh, Reed, that's me, Reed had a horrible attitude regarding uh, this and also towards his guest. Uh, I certainly wouldn't tune into your station again. Oh, God, I'm sorry I read out the comment, if that's the case. I don't believe a word, of course. Uh, By the way, sexualising children at a young age is grooming. Um, Well, yeah, that's... uh, Thank you for your opinion. Um, I I, I imagine the librarians who select these books uh, uh, as age-appropriate wouldn't feel that at all. Uh, Colm phoned in to say Michael was very condescending and inappropriate with Jana. Michael said on air that children have sex. He believes that Michael should explain what he means by that statement. Colm was not impressed at all with Michael or his attitude. I have no problem uh, explaining that at all to you, Colm. Children have sex. Uh, that's what I meant by it. Uh, I suppose you could define sex in many ways, uh, but it's an intimacy that goes uh, from kissing through to sexual intercourse uh, and uh, many variations in between. Uh, but yes, children do have sex and they think about sex a lot. They probably think more about sex than they actually do have sex. Uh, some children have sex at a very young age. Uh, and uh, the question is, how do you protect children? What's the best way to protect them? Uh, we've learned, I, I think most of us have learned, from the pious attitudes in this country of the 90s. 1950s, uh, where these kind of things weren't discussed and uh, they were swept under the carpet and people were condemned if uh, they had sex outside of marriage and quite often it was the people who condemned those people uh, for the way they were acting that ended up uh, with unwanted pregnancies in their family or or sexual abuse in their family or other problems in their family uh, because it is one of the most natural things uh, that uh, we'll ever Uh, live through, which is uh, that uh, sexual part of our our bodies which cannot uh, be uh, uh, pushed under uh, the carpet like that. Uh, And uh, I think that's why the educators want to speak to children about sex, what sex actually is and what it can be, and then let them decide what way they want to behave. Owen Andrade phoned to say he was very disappointed by the way Michael treated Janet. What agenda has Michael Owen? Says he has young children and he would like to protect them from those books. They should not be allowed into the libraries for 12-year-olds. Owen says he does appreciate LMFM for highlighting the topic and informing the public of what is going on, but nobody should be spoken to in that manner. 
thank you Owen uh, maybe we'd uh, explain uh, a point as well that uh, we heard one side of uh, that story from Councillor John Sheridan then we heard another side of that story about the library books from uh, another councillor Emer Tobin uh, we heard uh, from Jana and another woman uh, who uh, is part of uh, this campaign uh, against these books uh, and they both wanted to come on. Uh, we said we'd try and organise a debate. Nobody wanted to debate with them and uh, we said, OK, look, we'll facil- facilitate a-, a debate but we're going to hear both sides of the argument. Uh, and uh, I think you heard Jana's side of the argument. I think it's clear from your calls uh, you heard the other side of the argument. Mary Andrada phoned in to say she was disgusted with how Michael... Uh, interviewed Jana on the show. She's 12-year-old grandchildren and she wouldn't like them to read those books. Do you know what they're doing on their phone, Mary? Um, <clears throat> I think it'd be very interesting uh, to see what uh, your children are doing on their phones uh, or what they're looking at on other children's phones. It's a big bad world out there. Uh, Mary says she's never phoned into any radio station before, but she was really disappointed with my behaviour and she felt Jana was spoken to in a very offhand manner and had her answers cut off before she could finish them. Unacceptable behaviour, she says. Now, uh, to some other issues uh, that we didn't get because we ran over on that interview yesterday uh, and we had comments from people uh, that we didn't come to uh, about smoking and vaping, uh, particularly about vaping uh, because we were speaking to Tomas Sharkey about vaping and Brian was on the phone to us after listening to Councillor Sharkey with great interest uh, and Brian says vaping reminds him of when the drinks industry introduced alcohol pops into the market as a way of introducing alcohol to young drinkers. Vaping is essentially the tobacco industry version of this. He says he agrees with Tomas when he says vapes should be banned because we can never really know what's in them so they pose serious health concerns. Also another aspect is the environmental impact of them. Brian says he's no the empty packaging from vapes littered all over the place, much more so than you'd ever see from cigarette packaging. Uh, So they're dangerous on two fronts, health-wise and environmentally. Pauline says she would fully back the calls to ban vaping in social settings or social venues. She says that in some places people are practically vaping on top of you with no consequences. She's a keen dancer and she loved going to dances, socialising and so on, but she stopped. She says she just had to stop a few months ago because... Um, she'd end up having a respiratory specialist. Uh, uh, she had to see a respiratory specialist because she developed badly swollen glands and lumps in her throats where she had an adverse reaction to people vaping uh, so close to her. She thinks vaping should be treated exactly the same way as smoking and should not be allowed indoors in social venues. If you want to vape, then you should have to do it in the smoking area alongside the other smokers. Thanks, Pauline. I'm a bit uh, surprised by that. I thought most places asked vapors to vape outside Rita phoned in. She and her husband were heavy smokers. They changed over to vaping for four years and it helped them to give up smoking. She says, Mr. Sharkey has no addiction. He never smoked, so he doesn't understand what it's like to try and give up something that you're addicted to. Rita says, there's nothing wrong with vaping. There's a lot worse going on that Mr. Sharkey should be looking after. I think uh, he was saying that they should be available for people giving up smoking uh, as a way to give up smoking in the way that you and your husband did, Rita, but that they should be banned uh, uh, from being sold in the way they are with all the colours and the flavours and uh, the packaging and all of that stuff uh, that's attracting young people to develop a habit that they never had to begin with. They never smoked and they started vaping and ended up addicted to vapes and the cost that goes with them. But thank you indeed if you have been in touch. That's just a, a taste of what people have been saying to us and we'd love to hear from you. If you haven't been in touch with us, our telephone number is 041 983 2000. Text or WhatsApp 086 1800 uh, 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. 
Now, inflation is obviously a huge uh, concern to us, but it, it's dropped an awful lot. It peaked at 10%. Uh, it's now at 6% and is expected to average at about 5%. What would it be if it wasn't uh, for grocery inflation? Uh, which is at 16.6% or indeed uh, the increase in the cost of energy bills despite uh, the drop in wholesale prices. Well, um, there may be some action. Uh, The retail forum is due to meet on the 22nd of June. This includes representative organisations and some major supermarkets and they will meet with uh, the government. Uh, But that retail forum, instead of meeting on the 22nd of June, it may meet next week, according to the Irish Times. The Taoiseach has asked uh, the Junior Enterprise Minister, Neil Richmond, to bring forward that meeting as soon as possible. Uh, And the supermarkets may be told that there's a possibility of price caps because the prices aren't coming down in line with inflation. Let's speak to Suzanne Rogers, who's Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. A very good morning to you, Suzanne, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. We all know that when we go into the supermarket, uh, we're paying more at the tills, uh, but do you believe it's a case of price gouging? I'd hate to go on record with that, Michael, yeah. mm. to be honest with you. I suppose, but you know, you and me, like we're having a policy discussion, but we are also consumers. So we're going around the supermarket and, you know, we're looking at what the total is when we get to the the, the, the till. And I think probably like a lot of people now, we're actually adding it up in our heads as we go around because we're kind of thinking, well, you know, I only have 100 or I only have 120 or whatever it is. Um, So it has been interesting, though, as I go around the supermarket to see what prices are increasing and by how much over the last year or so. So I was at an event yesterday or the morning before, sorry, and they were talking about food inflation and that food inflation and energy inflation have really been the key elements in inflation over the last two years. And that's, again, for the low-income households, that's where they spend most of their money. That's where Mm. most of us spend most of our money. but it has been really interesting to see that we've, we really had no food inflation for probably about 10 years and then all of a sudden this huge jump. So it, and it we is became very, very blasé, didn't we? And we just bought whatever we wanted without really thinking about it. I, I think previous generations would have been savvy shoppers and this uh, increase in prices could lead to a new generation of savvy shoppers looking at prices uh, and deciding, well, you can save 50 euro a week if you shop around. But that's it. I mean, for a lot of households, you know, this last year has been very, very, very difficult. And some people, you know, we, we, we're moving back, back towards sort of own brand stuff or what, you know, what we used to call yellow pack when I was a kid. You know, you're moving away from the, the big brands, maybe to own brands. You are trying to save money right the way across all of your outgoings. And it, it is, it, it's so difficult to say, though, whether an increase in price is because of, um, you know, the packaging, the staff costs. Is it, as you said, is it gouging? Is it either the manufacturers or the distributors or the supermarkets saying, well, actually, nobody will notice if we bang an extra 15 or 20 cent on this, even though we maybe don't need to. It's really, really difficult for us as consumers to be able to see where the where the price increases are coming from. But I mean, I think a key concern will be that inflation, it is. It is, I suppose it's, it's decreasing, but we're not going to get deflation. We're not going to go back, I don't think, to the prices mm. that we've seen before. And for many people, again, I think, you know, the ongoing thing is going to be a little, it's still going to be a struggle. So 
if we have a headline this week that say something's gone from maybe 250 to 220, two years ago it was probably only costing 150. So, you know, yes, the prices have dropped, but it has been a case, I think, of maybe two steps forward, one step back. Our, the prices of things will will stay, I think, probably where they are. I can't see us, I can't see prices actually dropping in line with the decrease in inflation because we're not actually going to see deflation. That undermines uh, the free market argument of uh, the market looks after itself and competition will bring prices down uh, to increase sales for those who can charge less. But I suppose... Yeah, I mean, the whole thing about the free market, I think, is, is, is a really interesting conversation. But what happened is, like, buyer, buyer meet seller in the free market, and that's what we've seen, is that we are still, we are still filling our trolleys at the end of the week, but we may be, we may be moving towards maybe more calorie-dense stuff. We might be buying more, you know, cheap bags of pastas, maybe uh, cheaper cuts of meat, or, you know, moving towards maybe more vegetarian stuff. It's probably, you know, it's easier and cheaper sometimes to make a, a big stew with loads of veggies in it um, but at the, so, so you know we are we're still buying stuff in the supermarkets it's not like we've said we refuse as buyers to buy from you at the price you're selling um, so I think you know if, if a jar of coffee went from 350 to 450 and enough of us are buying it at 450 yeah. it's unlikely that the um, you know that the, the, either the manufacturer or the distributor or the supermarket is kind of go well. We could probably sell a few extra if we dropped it to three seventy. Mm. If they can maintain their profit margins at four fifty, that's what they'll continue to do. Yeah. Uh, and when we talk about pennies and cents, it really doesn't mm. s- seem like a, a, an awful lot of money. But another way of looking at it is, if you're doing your weekly shopping today, let's say, uh, imagine as you're on your way into the supermarket, you lose seventy six euro. Uh, you'd be a bit out of sorts. Uh, and the reason I say that is that the United Trade Union is saying uh, that the value of a weekly wage has dropped on average by €76 euro a week. Well, I, I would say, again, that event I was at, what they were looking at was um, state pension and core welfare rates. And again, similar sort of figures. So even with the increases in the budgets from 2020 on state pension and core welfare, your um, pension is... In terms of your spending power, it's 18 euro less per week than it was in 2020. And for social welfare, again, even in despite of the increases that we've seen, that's actually getting you 14 euro less in spending power than 2020. Mm. So that that is going to be a real challenge, I think, for this year and next year for for policymakers, for unions, for for budget 2024. Um, is that the money we have? in our pockets is is getting us less. It's going, it isn't going as far as it used to. Yeah, and then imagine the people bracing themselves thinking about how much their mortgage is going to increase by today. That's another thing as well. I mean, again, mortgage rates, we're coming out of a really, really, really long period of very low interest rates. Again, I don't know whether any of your listeners will remember back to 14% uh, interest on mortgages back in the day, you know, yeah. we I don't think we certainly can't cope with that kind of. No, I, re- I remember sixteen percent. Uh, to be yeah. honest, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, mm. I, you know, I don't, I don't, we, we couldn't cope with that. You know, we couldn't. I mean, even even three three and a half four percent now is is quite high, and we're seeing five and six percent mortgages. But that's it for households who are already budgeting. For households who were in difficulty, you know, we had COVID. Coming out of COVID, all the households who were impacted in that in terms of maybe lost jobs or lost hours, uh, the impact on education, all of that, and then to come into this 
And as you said, this year I think is still going to be. It's, it's still it's, it's a bumpy ride I think for 2023 in terms of accommodation. And there are key things: the roof over your head, food on the table, heat bill, light bill. They are they are really priorities. You know what I mean? Um, and all of those things we don't really get to shop around. We don't really get to to choose too much as you said you can do a little bit of movement around between your supermarkets mm. but all of those other key costs have to be have to be covered have yeah. to be covered yeah well uh, if we can't cover them then we're buying less which means less sales for the supermarket and it's a false economy isn't it uh, i mean is, is it in the interest to make shopping unaffordable for people from a supermarket perspective or is it that we're just spending more and have less to spend on, on other items Again, I think because food is a priority, um, we do tend to put that first. So we'll put off the haircut, we'll put off maybe the new shoes, we'll put off, um, you know, an evening out, something like that. We are going to put food on the table first. But even within those priorities, what we're seeing, I suppose, again, is the accommodation comes first, heat and light come second, and then food comes after that. So what you're seeing now is, is households that are really, really, really pushed and it, it can sometimes be that there, there simply there's not enough money there to be able to put a dinner on the table for every every household member every night of the week. So you you know you are seeing households where um, you know dinners dinners aren't being eaten maybe by you know the mum or the dad that type of thing. We're hearing all of those stories. They're they're, they're all out there anecdotally. The rise in food banks, the rise in um, food vouchers, all of that kind of stuff. So. I mean, it it is it is it is in that kind of you know sort of arena with people on low incomes, um. But in, you know, when you're having to make those kind of choices, and I don't even want to say choices because obviously it's not somebody sits down and says, hmm, you know, what will I do today? Uh, you know, these are really, really, really difficult decisions that households are having to make. Yeah, uh, and what do you do? Go to the food bank or whatever, as you say. Uh, interesting. Uh, on that note, uh, to look at the front page of the Meath Chronicle today, which is reporting that the Summer Hill Meals on Wheels service, Sona Sosta Meals on Wheels, uh, may be forced to close its doors to stop the service because uh, it's becoming so costly to provide the service. That, yeah, I mean, for us, everything is so linked and you're having this conversation. Again, I'd, I'd seen it, read it in the paper recently. I think it was some cafe in some small town in England was having to no longer offer hot breakfast because of their energy costs. So everything is tied in. I mean, even, you know, being able to heat your food uh, you know, that can even sometimes be a, a strain on the finances. And again, you know, reading headlines that people are in food banks and they're actually looking for food that doesn't need to be heated yeah. because they can't afford maybe to put the gas on or they can't afford to cook the food when they get it home. I mean, this is this is outrageous, I think, actually, in, in, a, in a wealthy country like Ireland. Like, that's that's the thing that always I find very difficult is that we read headlines about our GDP growth and we have this 65 billion budget surplus and we're kind of going, okay, that's brilliant. Mm. And then 20 minutes later, we'll have a headline that says, you know, 13.1% of the population are living in poverty. I find it really, really difficult to join those two things in my head in the same country. Okay. Me too. I'm sure most people do as well. Suzanne, thank you indeed for joining us today. Suzanne Rogers, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk about uh, the circular economy, whatever that is, or at least uh, let's talk about the National Waste Management Plan for a Circular Economy. Uh, We're joined by Hugh Conlon, a regional coordinator for the Eastern Midlands Waste Region. Good morning to you, Hugh, and thank you indeed for joining us. I've heard this phrase quite a lot, a circular economy. What is that? Yeah, it's uh, we do like in society to come up with uh, new terms, but really the circular economy is probably much more familiar to people than they would realise. Uh, really what the circular economy is about is is still the, the old aspects in terms of reducing, reusing, repairing, recycling, you know, all of those aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about keeping things in the loop, materials in the loop for as yeah. long as possible. Mm-hmm. So by doing that, Ultimately, you, you're less of a drain on natural resources. Because wa- wa- yeah. waste is rubbish. Uh, and if it becomes rubbish, that's the end of it. But you're talking about waste going around and around and being used in different ways uh, because of reusing and recycling yeah, and so on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and as I said, like, you know, people would remember maybe, you know, bygone days when yep. our parents and grandparents and all that, this thing would have just happened automatically. And again, people are still doing a lot of this. It's just that we need to really embed it even more into our everyday life. Okay, now there's a a draft plan that is to run from now up to 2029 for the country uh, to see us get better at circular economy, if you like, or uh, making our rubbish go around to become something else or reduce, reuse, recycle, as uh, the case may be. And you want to hear from people and their ideas on this. Yeah, like we've, over the last two years now, we've been... Uh, working away and we as in in the councils and you know engaging with all the the experts and practitioners um, around so we think we have a plan that can provide a sort of a framework for us for the next six years but really the success of that plan is going to be down to every individual so before we go forward we think we have a plan that could work but we want to hear from people people's views and what they think mm. um, and we want to make it you know we're making it very very easy for people everything is on mywaste.ie and you can do an online mm. submission we'll be have a social and digital campaign we'll be running some polls throughout the two months and yeah it is a two month period so mm. up until the 5th of July uh, you, you can actually uh, you know make a submission and you know we've lots of the, the main documents are on the website but we've also an executive summary and even we have an executive summary of the executive summary so again <laughs> yeah. which then offsides yeah it's a, a huge yeah. website there's an awful lot of information on it uh, and some very good and uh, important information for people who don't want uh, what they're throwing out to become rubbish and forgotten about uh, uh, as such uh, mywaste.ie uh, whether you're going to uh, make suggestions or look for suggestions because there's a lot of suggestions as to how people can reuse their waste on the site as well. There is. Everything yeah. is, is on that site. All You know, it, it is the, the main point of contact in terms of everything you want to know about waste, uh, but we're afraid to ask, essentially. Mm. Uh, but in terms of this as well, we want to hear from people in terms of, you know, how, how the waste system is working for them mm. at the moment. You know, uh, Biggest criticism we would hear here is, mm. uh, and it's been a while since anybody's mentioned it, but why did they stop the plastic bottle bottle banks? Well, interesting enough, um, next year is going to see the introduction of a um, deposit and return system. And uh, this has been announced by government um, and it's been introduced next year. Mm. So ne- from next year, you will be able to bring your plastic bottles or cans to your local shop. Mm. 
and uh, you, uh, you will you will have paid a deposit mm. on it when you purchase it. Ten then, cent, let's say. Ten, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and you buy a uh, bottle of water, you drink the water, you bring the bottle back, back you get you ten cents. You put yeah. it into a machine mm-hmm. and yeah. you get your, mm-hmm. depo- your deposit mm-hmm. uh, back. It'll be 25 cent for a certain mm-hmm. size and 15 cent for other size. And mm-hmm. you'll then you'll mm-hmm. be able to bring that back, you'll get your deposit back. Mm-hmm. And I think what that'll lead to as well, um, you know, we still have a problem in terms of the level of recycling of plastics. Mm-hmm. We're still, uh, you know, have high targets to reach and yeah. we're not we're not there yet. Um, so this will be an opportunity. And then that material will be very, very clean, mm. high quality. And then that can go to the mm. market and get and, a better and, value. It's not a new idea by any means. No. It's been working successfully for decades in other countries. And if you throw away your plastic bottle, somebody else picks it up because there is a deposit on it. And uh, they'll be quite happy to take your 15 cent or your 30 cent if you don't want it and decide to throw it on the street. But it was a very uh, ill thought through uh, move to take away the plastic bottle bottle banks, wasn't it? Um, well, at the moment as well, you have to realise that um, over the last 20 years, we've really embedded a curbside service for people. You know, so people have at their door, the vast majority of people, access mm. to a curbside system. So you have your general waste bin, you have your dry recycling, mm. the green bin is uh, more familiar mm. known, and then you have your uh, your food waste recycling bin mm. as well. So the plastics can go into that. Oh, gen- I know, but it, me- it meant that instead of being able to recycle them free, you had to pay for it. Well, you, well, uh, an incentivized system, you know, in terms of where you're, yes. yeah, you're, you're, mm. you're yeah, you took away lesser. the incentive. Yeah. yeah, but the other thing, I think, one of the, mm. uh, you've mentioned the issue of um, the banks, and I think one mm. of the people, this is a one where you know, I just want to show to people, you know, how successful we can be. Uh, we're recycling eighty six percent of our glass now, mm. so our network and the way people have embraced that by separating their bottles, bringing mm. them to the bank, mm. separating them out, putting them to different colours into the bin. So we're one of the best mm. performers in Europe. Mm. I think that's because glass. it's much cheaper it's than, than the UK. But it's much cheaper than putting them in the bin. I think that makes well, the point. You, you I think that makes the previous point yeah. for me. Thank you. You can't. You can't, you can't do it. But uh, yeah. even mm. uh, the in Europe, they remark, um, the, the processors mm. here in Ireland remark on how impressed you know mm. people are with the quality of the material. Are, are you worried about the bin companies? Uh, are, are you worried about this move to charge people for lifting the brown bins or the compost bins? Yeah, there have been a lot of conversations about this over the last uh, number of it's weeks. It's mad, isn't it? One of the things. I mean, but absolutely. I mean, I compost. I, you know, we, we put black bin out twice a year, green bin out maybe five times a year. Um, but that's because everything else goes into the compost. Uh, but... Uh, the reason, one of the reasons we do it, apart from the environment, is that you end up with compost, which is great for the garden, and you don't have to pay for the compost, so you're winning on the double. Uh, so why should somebody be charging me for that valuable product? I think, now, I'm not an apologist for the waste company, but I think it's important to, to look at what does the legislation require the companies to do. And uh, about three, three or four years ago, uh, the, the ability to, to uh, charge a flat charge to a customer that was eliminated in law. So, and that was the whole idea behind that was to try and get people to start, you know, putting the, the right things in the right bin. And the concept behind it is that you pay more for your black bin than you do your incentivized to bin. use the other bins. Mm. So the black bin has to carry. So the companies have to adhere to that. Mm. So there's a, the one thing is there's an awful lot of mm. charging systems out there, I know, um, but you have a you, you have a thing on your website. You mentioned your website, MindWaste.ie, mm-hmm. and it is very good. And you, and you explain where the compost goes when you put it into the brown bin. It ends up as 
compost, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is valuable. Uh, why? I mean, surely that's the reward for taking away your compost. But, but if, if you take on the concept, if you're mm. paying more for your general mm. and then you're incentivized to put in more. So the more you put into your general, mm. the more you'll pay. Mm. You'll pay less. So mm. the charges for the, the dry recyclables and, and the Bremen are much less. Mm. Um, and actually, a lot of people are already paying for the brown. It was just in this instance, there's, you know, there was a particular cohort mm. with, with one company in particular that, that weren't, because a lot of people were saying in other places, well, we're already paying a charge. So mm. it, it is. And in that case, actually, the, the, the brown is, the general waste bin is three times more okay. than the, the, the brown. You don't believe this is the beginning of a direction that the bin companies are, are going in? And no, no. And what actually, mm. To, mm. to maybe give people, Give the listeners comfort. Um, there's a price monitoring group being re-established by the minister, and that's going to watch the pricings. And also, us in local government, uh, we're going to be undertaking a study into incentivised charging because mm. the whole idea behind incentivised charging is to increase our recycling rates and get better quality materials. So we need to reflect on that and see how has that worked and see if there are any recommendations. But mm. we're, we are hearing feedback that sometimes people are confused and there's a lot of different ranges of charging systems out there. So we do have to look at it and see, is it working? Mm. Is it having the desired effect? Okay, and I mean, your objective is to save the planet, uh, to protect the environment uh, by this circular economy, by us reusing our waste uh, and it becoming something else. Uh, But there is another concern that people have about the environment and the bin companies and that is the fuel that is being used, uh, that instead of a situation that you find in other European countries where bin companies have a, a franchise, uh, you have two or three different bin companies going up the same street on a weekly basis. Yeah, and, and again, um, you know, we work closely because of, obviously we're regulators, so we have to you know, uh, enforce and make sure that the companies are doing what they're supposed to do. And again, as part of this plan, again, we're saying that we want to encourage and, and engage mm. with the companies maybe to look at alternative fuels. And there are alternative fuels emerging. But why, uh, why three lorries instead of one? Why three companies instead of one? Why not have a, a, a an exclusive franchise uh, for the bin companies, as is the case in other countries, and it's done on a tender basis, and the lowest bidder wins. Yeah, we're we're in a unique situation in Ireland where you know the the, the it's an open market. Um, that that was a decision taken into a government decision taken in two thousand and twelve, where they they um, you know policy decided competition in the market rather than competition for the market and there was a regulatory impact assessment done at that time so that has been the, the policy now um, the local authorities couldn't compete with the private sector at that time um, and you know a lot of local authorities moved out now we have to make sure that there still is a collection service available to people but usually if that's been provided by the private sector there's no role for the local authority. and it would take a change in national policy and it would change a change in national legislation forever the the local authorities to get back in the system mm. and again the danger is you know go down that path mm. like we've that decision was made in 2012 mm. we've moved we're 12 13 years on now that could be a very very difficult system to mm. unwind from where we got okay. to and that would take us away from really the challenges that we have at the at the moment and we do mm. have some challenges we're still at a 41% recycling rate mm. we have to get up to 55 by 2025 and people say it's 60. too cumbersome what, what would you say to people who say it's too cumbersome I mean you have to have three bins inside the house as well as three bins outside of the house you have your black general rubbish bin your green 
cardboard plastic bin and your compost bin. Uh, three bins, separating them out, getting the kids to do it in the right bin. Uh, and next thing you know, there's porridge or something in on top of the cardboard. And what do you do then? Uh, it's too much hassle, people say. No, and again, it comes back to what are we about here ultimately? And ultimately, mm-hmm. we want to, in, in, in dealing with managing waste, we want to play our part towards in terms of climate. And again, if we can actually, and I think the waste area is is a great area, you know, as an example. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of what we can do if we get into really good practices here and how we manage our wa- our waste mm-hmm. by segregating it properly and getting it, giving it a, a better life and, and a chance of an extended life, that can maybe those habits can transfer to over to other aspects of our I life in terms of how we consume. Yeah transport, how we can consume a lot of other things because, you know, consumption, it's all about consumption at the end of the day. We as a society, we we consume too much and I think there's still a need for economic growth to happen but it's just striking that balance between economic growth and and protecting the environment as well. I also think if people are concerned about their children, they'd be surprised (laughs) if uh, they talk to their children because they're quite often the ones who are most interested in it. They are are le- you know they're in school they're learning about this at an early age through green schools programs and uh, it's just becoming a habit it's just touch part and that's the way we want it it mm. shouldn't be something that's I have to think about this separately it just should be automatic you know that we just get into these habits and it becomes out because it's an awful lot of other things we have to deal with on a day to day basis mm. but if we can just build these things in mm. and they're small incremental mm. steps that people do and as I said people are doing a lot of this yeah. already it's just about maybe just mm. pushing her a bit more. And what about from a corporate side? Uh, 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 what about all of the packaging and plastic that we get? Can we reduce that? Can we go into a supermarket uh, and buy broccoli without a plastic bag? Yeah, and again, that's, you know, it's not all about what the citizen can do. It's about, as well, what the producers can do. And there are changes uh, happening. Like there is a, We have a producer responsibility scheme around packaging, so the producers do pay a fee, and that does go back into the system to try and help with supporting building uh, you know, uh, processing facilities and, 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 and so forth. But I think there is a need uh, for the producers to put uh, better quality packaging mm. and less of it. Mm. Um, are they the kind of suggestions you want from people, though? Uh, no, well, again, mm. I, I, I want people to tell us in terms of that area, you mm. know, us in the roles that we have, we have an opportunity to engage with these producers and engage with their organisations and try and push that agenda. I think that's what we advocate and push on that new agenda. The other thing, I, there's eco, I think called eco-modulisation of fees. So the producers are moving to a fee structure where, you know, the better quality they put out there, you know what I mean, it'll be, they'll pay more for, you know, poorer quality recycling and they're going to pay more f- for more packaging on it mm. as well. So that would help because, you know, the, the the general public will embrace all of this, but again, they need, we need to make it simple. Mm. We need to make it simple for people as well that they can do this. So, yeah, yeah and we're seeing the signs of it. You see in your supermarket go in, mm. you will see, 30% or 40% recycled content. Mm. You will see some packages uh, saying, you know, we're 30% less packaging. Yep. So you're starting to mm. see. But again, all of us as consumers, we have to keep 
pushing that agenda as well. Okay, all right. Well, mywaste.ie if people want to make suggestions. Mywaste.ie, all information on mywaste.ie. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Good to have you in the studio with us uh, this morning. Thank you for coming in. Hugh Conlon, Regional Coordinator for the Eastern Midlands Waste Region. Michael Reed on LMFM. I don't know if you realised Barney O'Dowd in Trim is 100 years of age. It was his birthday yesterday uh, and uh, congratulations Barney. Uh, It is a a great age. He's one of just 476 people to reach 100 in the last year. This is very disturbing by the way. Out of the 476 people who were 100 last year, only 72 of them were men. Uh, but Barney O'Dowd is a hundred. Uh, he celebrated his door, his birthday in Trim with his daughters Mary and Eleanor and his sons Noel, Cahill, Lachlan and Ronan. I read this in the Irish Times. I have to admit today he was born on the fourth of January, nineteen seventy six. No, I beg your pardon. On the fourth of January, nineteen seventy six, he was shot. Uh, and this is the remarkable story of Barney O'Dowd uh, because he was shot and gravely wounded by loyalist paramilitaries in his farmhouse in Ballydugan in County Down. Uh, it was during a Christmas gathering to mark the end of the Christmas holidays. His eldest brother, Joe, who was 61, and two of his sons, Barry, 24 years of age, and Declan, 19, were murdered in the attack. But Barney o- O'Dowd uh, survived. He missed the funerals, though, because he was in intensive care. Um, he also uh, uh, had his brothers John, Brian and Anthony uh, and Reeve were murdered in a coordinated attack on White Cross in County Armagh on the same night. It's quite a, an incredible story. He's uh, one of the victims of um, the Troubles, a member of uh, the Pat Finucane Centre for over 20 years uh, and wanted to mark his birthday by opposing the British government's proposed legacy bill um, he got €2,540 from President Higgins who also sent him a, a birthday card yesterday I thought you might be interested in that it used to be £100 wasn't it when you um, reached 100 uh, but €2,540 for Barney O'Dowd uh, who celebrated his 100th birthday in Trim in County Mead yesterday one of the survivors of the Glenan gang who lost so many of his family to the Troubles. Happy birthday to you, Barney. Uh, before we go, some more comments. Uh, John in touch with us saying, I put my waste bins out, uh, but when they go into the waste truck with others, they don't go into the right truck. It's a waste of time, says John. Uh, thank you for that, uh, John. I- I'm not sure that's the case uh, it could be the case uh, and there have been complaints about that over the years uh, but apparently some of the trucks have different sections so um, there's uh, different doors at the back of the truck the black bin goes in one and the green bin goes in another and they are being separated like that a separate John in touch with us uh, from Cross Akeel he says uh We've two companies, just one of them supply a compost bin. So we're forced to put the grass and so on in uh, to the grey black bin, unfortunately. Thank you, John. It makes wonderful compost, John, if you mix it with the cardboard uh, and get a compost bin uh, and feed it to your flowers and they'll grow and bloom and it'll be wonderful. Thank you for your comment. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. That's all we have time for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.